Yes, yes it is. Absolutely it is. Absolutely this is the final episode. Well, actually, I'll be honest with you. I'm not even really sure that this is the final episode. This this might be the final episode and it might not be because the fact of the matter is I'm t- sort of timing this out as I go and looking at the script, the, the document that's now up to, oh, I don't know, eight, 18, 19 pages, looking at the document for podcast eight, we're just ready to start section four, the modern age of diversity, 2000 to 2021. And I have so many guests and so many things to talk about that I probably should just shut up and get to it. But I'll tell you, if we reach the one hour mark, which is pretty much my goal, and it's just a few minutes over, I'm going over. But if we reach the one hour mark and it looks like there's a lot to go, well, guess what? There's going to be an episode nine. So welcome to RLTP's Off Road with me, Pete Pomisano, and this is episode eight of A History of Buffalo Theater. And I have to tell you that I am a little bit sad. Yeah, I'm a little bit sad because it's all coming to an end, all of the hard work, all the... Well, I'll be honest, I'm not sad that the hard work is coming to an end, but I'm sad to be finished talking about the history of Buffalo Theater because it's it's been a part of my life for like the entire COVID pandemic. And, and that's not over with yet either. But hey, guess what? This past weekend, the Buffalo News put out a special edition about all of the theaters and all of the new seasons starting again, and it was it was heartwarming. I'm very excited. There were so many theaters and so many listings of plays I can't wait for it all to happen, but oh, 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 there's the clock. And the ticking clock and the music tells you that we're getting right into reciting the timeline. And we will start where we left off right after 1999 with 2001 Kaleidoscope Theater produces at Madai College. Then, 2001 also, Summer Fair becomes Musical Fair. And you've already heard from Randy Kramer about how all of that happened, so let's keep moving along, because also in 2001, UB abandons the Pfeiffer Theater. The dean, Carrie S. Grant, said the college was dropping its lease with the nonprofit UB Foundation, which owned the Pfeiffer, because it could no longer justify paying the maintenance cost totaling $50,000 a year. But then, in 2002, the Jewish Repertory Theater begins, and here's Saul Elkin to talk to you about its founding. I was having lunch, and David Bunis happened to be lunching in a UB facility, He sat down, asked if he could join me. We chatted for a while, and somehow the conversation led us to the conclusion that perhaps we would propose to the Jewish Community Center the formation of a Jewish theater. I think out of the blue, it came out of that conversation. I mean, we we both felt that theaters were evolving in Buffalo with special interests. A theater in the the African-American Cultural Center, uh, a gay theater, and so on. The Irish theater, that, that it was time that the richness of the the Jewish heritage in theater should somehow be represented in Buffalo. And that was, you know, that was the gist of our conversation, out of which came a decision between us that we would try to start something and then we would approach the then executive director of the Jewish Community Center, which we did. And once again, we were met, you know, with the the same response I frequently get. Yes, we love it. We'll help you, but no money. But we we assumed that this would be of interest to the Jewish community. And what the then head of the Jewish Community Center was willing to give us was an office and a, a woman named Marcy Frankel, whom you probably remember. And uh, Marcy then was our first sort of secretary. And mailings went out to the Jewish community. And the result was the result was our first production. Suddenly we were we were a theater without a building. We were going to be wandering Jews. <laughs> and we were for a long time. As a matter of fact, we began at the uh, at the Irish Theater because as chairman of the theater department, I had given the then forming Irish Theater the use of our space at the at the Pfeiffer Theater. So this was this was recompense for that. And it wound up being that very nice production of The Chosen at the at the at their space. 
And that first season, we also did uh, visiting Mr. Green across the street in Neil Raddus' cabaret space. So it was David Bunis, who is uh, famous for family having run the sample shop, my mother's favorite store, uh, the sample shop years ago. David Bunis, who went to Saul and said, hey, uh, we should start a Jewish repertory theater. Or at least that's what David Bunis tells me. But they were without a theater. So how did they finally end up with the Sellers Theater? No, that came really as a sort of a surprise and a miracle. <laughs> and it came really with a phone call that I had from a woman named Maxine Seller. She said that she and her husband, I had known Maxine because she was a, a retired UB professor. Her husband was a retired surgeon. And uh, she said they had been redoing their finances and they would like to make a donation. They donated a quarter of a million dollars to redo a space at the Jewish Community Center in Getzville in Amherst to be a theater. And what resulted was the theater that's there now, the Maxine and Robert Seller Theater. It was to be a sort of uh, auditorium. It was under construction, and there was uh, partitions everywhere. I mean, it was a mess. But in the midst of all of that, they agreed to redo that one space as a theater. Originally, it was intended to be a space for both for the Jewish Repertory Theater and for the youth program. And then eventually, a decision was made to give it over entirely to the Jewish Repertory Theater. It was a coincidence, and, and it, was the, it was the willingness of the then executive director to change their plans. And instead of whatever it was that they had planned for that space, uh, to convert it into a space that would be principally a theater, but possibly also for the youth program, and eventually fully for the theater. And finally, as we say farewell to Saul, I asked him to look back on his legacy, and this is what he said. I'm proud of the fact that a, a Jewish theater came into being, and I'm proud of the fact that eventually it landed in that building. But more than anything, I'm proud of the quality of work that was done in that theater, has been done over the last 18 years or whatever it is. That I didn't anticipate, but that people like, you know, Brian Kavanaugh and Tom McCarr, who came on board, you know, in Sound and Lights, and the many, many actors, including yourself, who, uh, who came and worked in that room and created a level of theater that was very high, I thought. Thank you, Saul. So now the music indicates that we are continuing on the timeline in 2002, when the former Town Casino and Pfeiffer Theater once again returns to its roots as the Sphere Entertainment Complex, after purchase by Joseph Guagliardo, or Guagliardo, whatever. That was in 2002. Now, in 2003, Torn Space is founded. Here's Dan Shanahan to talk about its founding. I transitioned right out of undergrad. So I was an English literature major at Buffalo State College and just started to take some directing courses towards the back end of my time there. And the reason why I got into directing was because I had an interest in film and theater just seemed like a more immediate way to put ideas out there so that I didn't have to kind of navigate through the technical requirements of film and cinema. I just went into theater through that perspective. So we're going back to probably 99, 2000. A classmate said, I want to show you the space. And it was the Adam Excavage on the east side. And so he toured me the space and he said, would you like to put on a production here? And this was just after I had maybe done only one or two projects at the college. And so I, I produced an experimental work for the stage in late 1999, early 2000. So I never intended then for that to continue. I thought this was going to be like a one or two shot deal. So then I asked Dan, what was there about the Adam Miskevich dramatic circle building that attracted him? And how did that arrangement start? Poland has a long tradition of sort of avant-garde works. And Adam Mickiewicz has a long tradition of promoting kind of intellectual concepts because of the namesake, Adam Mickiewicz, a great uh, romantic poet. So the first play we did was, you know, a production by a playwright called Tadeja Serzevich called The Old Woman Brood. Then someone from the club said, well, let's look in the phone book and see if there's any Rezeviches in the area. And there happened to be one named Vincent Rezevich. They called him 
and said, would you know today is Rebevich? He goes, yes, that's my cousin. And they said, well, why don't you come? We'd like to have you as a, as a guest for this production. He came to the production. I don't know if he liked the production, but he liked the club. And then he ended up becoming the bartender for 15 years at that space. So any guests of Torn Space remember, most people really comment on this great bartender. And so when we first started there, the, the last of the World War II uh, immigrants were still there at the club. And it was just a, just a wild kind of environment. And it, I just felt that it was a good fit. A good fit indeed. But what was the plan? How did Torn Space come about? We were asked to come up with a company to develop a, a performance series at the Riviera Theater. And so I quickly then had to figure out what name we should call a company. And so I came up with Torn Space. That never happened. We never ended up doing any work at the Riviera. They didn't, I guess, like our concept. And so I now have a company called Torn Space and no real plans to make it into a company. So I do another production. Uh, and again, we're kind of dabbling in kind of classic avant-garde playwrights, whether it be Samuel Beckett, maybe a little Harold Pinter. And then it just becomes you know, year after year. And then eventually we realize that you know, this can actually turn into a, a developed company. We had no mission statement. We had no business plan. It was completely driven by an art project is how I would describe it. And then in around 2003, uh, that's when we realized, yeah, there was an audience for this work. There's a way that we can kind of put this within the organizational structure and actually turn it into something that has a little staying power. So almost by serendipity, almost kismet, Torn Space is born with staying power. What was the aesthetic of Torn Space? What was the intention? So what I was doing was I was pulling on my interest from film. And around the early 2000s, I was spending a lot of time going back and forth to New York. And I was becoming very influenced by some of the work I was seeing in New York. And then MoMA had an exhibition on the artist Matthew Barney in the Crane Master Cycle. And that installation or performance or hybrid really had a, a big impact on me for what theater could become for Torn Space. And so it was really me pulling other interests together. So theater became a kind of a, a repository for me to take these interests and kind of put it into a space, creating curated experiences for the audience to participate with. And often that takes the format of what could be considered a theater production. But as we get kind of further and further into site-specific work, it's really crossing into performance, installation, and other, other ways in which we can get the audience to kind of experience what it is we're creating. And then what we started to do was usually work with a group of performers, usually, for our work. Those groups have changed throughout the years, but because of the process of our work and, and kind of how we like to work, that helps us have a shorthanded language on how we communicate with performers. And we've also always have worked with this kind of mixture of performers who are trained, but also we like to really integrate people who've never been on stage before, uh, working in with the professional in order to develop the aesthetic. And finally, Dan Shanahan wants to give some credit and some thanks to those who helped. The main individual credit would be now my wife, at the time my girlfriend, Melissa Miola. We started the company together. She was able, fortunate enough to get a, a teaching position early on, so that was able to provide us with some stable income. And I was bartending, working in a restaurant, and we were basically taking the money and self-funding these projects. These are very minor budgets, but we weren't a nonprofit yet. We had no access to grants. We had no other external funding. It was all bootstrap and then whatever ticket revenue would come in. And so Melissa really helped develop it. And then she, not only was she helping develop it from an organizational standpoint, but also as an artistic influence. And then Tim Stagner, who was the individual who came up with our brand and in terms of the graphics, the images, but also as a, as a kind of an artistic advisor. Uh, and he's still with us. He lives in Portland now, but he works remotely on our work. And so, you know, we've all been, the three of us have been together now for it's over 20 years. I do feel extremely fortunate that we've been able to develop a company that is able to bring, we think, really exciting talent, both locally, but also what we've been very proud of is being able to connect with artists outside of the area and bring them into Buffalo and collaborate with them on, on the development of work. If you go back to those early days, it's hard, I think, for people to fully appreciate how unusual it is what we were attempting to do, which was not only create extremely experimental work that didn't have any name recognition, but to do it in the east side, which just was not getting a lot of attention or traction from the general public. 
And so it was a huge uphill battle to try to gain that traction. And thank you, Dan Shanahan, for contributing that information about Torrance Space Theater. 2003, Subversive Theater, founded by Kurt Schneiderman, starts operating and eventually finds itself in the Manny Freed Theater, named after one of the great playwrights, actors, labor leaders, Mr. Manny Freed. But now, 2004, Scott Behrend and co-founder John Elston start Road Less Traveled Productions. Without them, I wouldn't be even doing this podcast, so let's give them some time. Scott Behrend, talk about your start in Buffalo. I was very fortunate. I was in the right place at the right time, and I booked a whole bunch of work, including at the Irish Classical, and they were in the process of building their new theater, and um, they needed a set designer. And I ended up doing... I think like 35 or 40 productions at the Irish over a period of years. So I started directing plays locally. The first person, and I give a shout out to Richard Lambert here from the New Phoenix, who gave me my first professional directing gig in Buffalo. I directed Entertaining Mr. Sloan. And then I did a couple of other smaller projects. And I decided I wanted to go back to graduate school and get my MFA in directing. And I, I did that process and I was told I'm on the right track, but I'm still too young and to come back and see them in a few more years. Well, I didn't like that answer. So I decided I was going to try something that I swore I never would do and thought about starting my own theater company, primarily to give myself more opportunities to direct and also be able to do the kind of work that I was interested in doing which I didn't feel there was as much of that kind of work being done in Buffalo theater at that moment. So I asked Scott, what exactly was the moment when Road Less Traveled basically took off? Nobody was really also focusing on Western New York writers, the, the playwriting community at that time. So I was interested in seeing who was writing plays locally at that point, and I remember I called up my friend, John Elston, who, of course, had never written a play before, but I knew he was a good writer because he and I had worked on a film together years before that and said, OK, John, if you uh, write a play, I want you to write a play. I'm going to direct it. We're going to produce it ourselves here locally because we can do things cheaply here in Buffalo. And then we'll take that product, so to speak, and we'll ship it outside of Buffalo. And that's how we'll make money. Luckily, he believed me, and that's how Road Less Traveled was born. So I went and I got a DBA. I had thought about uh, Road Less Traveled for a while, the name, but that was the original DBA, and uh, we were a for-profit business to start. And the first play that John wrote was a piece called Project. It was a four-hander, and we produced it ourselves, I think for like less than $3,000, and the only way we could do that is we rented out the new Phoenix. And I basically had a, a small black book of names at that point of great actors that I had worked with as a set designer and people who I had become friends with. At that moment, I was able to get Brian Riggs and Tim Newell and Phil Nerzer and Todd Benson to basically do this for us for a song. And also because the material was great. But if you've been to Road Less Traveled Theater, you know that their productions set a certain tone. There's just something going on there. And this is what Scott says about that. And John, really, at that point, he immediately turned around and wrote his second play, Interrogation Room, which ended up being a big hit for a number of reasons. He won a couple of playwriting prizes outside the community, one from the Source Theater in Washington, D.C., and then we produced it the following season at Ujima. And that was the turning point, interrogation room for, for Road Less Traveled as a, as a company, because it was a much bigger production, but bigger budget. We had two equity actors in that show, the late John Biscaglia. And uh, Matt Witten, our first time with Matt Witten here in Buffalo. And I knew that if, you know, if we didn't sell enough tickets to that show, that I was going to have to sell my car. So we were... The stakes were high, and uh, we ended up uh, getting a great review. People came to see it. We sold a bunch of tickets. And that show, the social topics of that show, racism, 
police brutality, classism. There's a lot going on in that show. Plus this great uh, mystery, I think really exemplified sort of the, the kind of work that Road Less Traveled then. I think that was the direction in which we wanted to head. And then we became company in residence at the New Phoenix. We did two productions the following season, John's play Private Viewing, and then our first non-John play, Two to the Head by Daryl Schneider. I think that was probably the watershed moment in terms of like once we had gone not for profit and we could raise money that this is something that we were going to invest in, I think, long term. So I asked Scott, what was his goal? What was his intention? What was he trying to achieve with a theater called Road Less Traveled Productions? In 2003, you know, there weren't a lot of theaters at that time in Buffalo who were doing work that that I would say was that socially progressive and was appealing to more of a universal audience. Something from the beginning that I was interested in was doing work that was going to appeal to a a younger uh, set of folks. Cause I was a younger, you know, I was 26 at the time, 27. And I didn't see a lot of me sitting in Buffalo theaters. So John and I were acutely aware of that and wanted not only to, I think, increase the diversity of age, but also the diversity of people, that, that was certainly a big deal. And I felt like that we could try and accomplish that. Looking at national contemporary voices who we felt were looking at the, the issues and appealing to that universal audience. The last part about that is also just trying to remain as topical as possible, too. We wanted to sort of talk about things that were happening more right now, nationally and locally, you know, trying to address the issues that were important to us. And finally, Scott talks about the person who came on board and really helped turn things into a smoothly running machine, his right hand, Gina Gandolfo. I had to learn everything about running a theater company on the job. Somebody that we should really talk about is Gina Gandolfo. Somewhere along that line, it became clear that I had to have somebody who was had a little bit more experience in some of the administrative, the business side of things, and that could sort of complement the other work that I was doing. And that really became, we needed a a full-time managing director. And she's basically been my partner in crime now for 11 years. And she's done a, a terrific job of advancing what we do to the highest level. And I think we've created now something that we both feel very proud of. Thank you, Scott, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to do this history of Buffalo theater. We will continue now with 2004, when 16 local professional theater companies form the Buffalo Theater Alliance, uh, later renamed the Theater Alliance of Buffalo, and it currently consists of 18 to 20 member companies. 2005, the first annual Buffalo Infringement Festival takes place, from July 28th to August 7th. I'm told that Kurt Schneiderman is the individual most directly responsible for its inception. In 2005, noted Buffalo promoters Artie Quitschoff and Donnie Kutzbach renovate the previous town casino, now the Sphere Entertainment Complex, and they reopen it as a concert hall, the Town Ballroom. In 2006, Brazen-Faced Varlets is co-founded by Heather Fangsrud and Lara D. Heberberger. In 2007, the former Erlanger Theater building is demolished for a federal courthouse. In 2007, the McDonald's, Terry and Lorena, revive the Playhouse of American Classics, which for several seasons presented long-neglected plays at the Buffalo History Museum as what they called Chamber Theater. They started with very few frills and actors holding books. Also in 2007, American Repertory Theatre of Western New York is founded by Matthew Lacusa. 2007 also showed the Alt Theatre opening in the Great Arrow Building. And now you see why I call this the modern age of diversity and expansion. So much is happening in 2007. Then in 2008, Studio Arena closes its doors. We'll hear more about it now from our old friend, Ann Moot. And it was essentially Gavin, combined with a lot of monkey business going on at the theater and the board not paying attention. I could give you 
chapter and verse about all that, which probably you're not, aren't interested in, but just to give you an idea of the monkey business that went on there. Lots of times we would have our board meetings in the theater so that we could look at the set or we could talk about it. And they had all these uh, very beautiful high-backed chairs sitting around the stage. So I'm looking at these chairs. The only thing covering the chairs was just the seat portion. So I'm looking at these chairs and I'm saying to Gavin, these look like they were hand embroidered. And he said, oh, they were. We hired some very artistic person to hand embroider all these, these chair covers. There must have been, oh, at least eight of these chairs, maybe more. I, I don't remember how many, but there were at least eight. The audience couldn't see those stupid seat covers. I said, why couldn't you just buy a tapestry, a piece of material that had a tapestry in it? He said, well, we wanted it to look very authentic for the cast. I thought to myself, baloney. Baloney. We had another play. I think it was around Christmas time but there was a swimming pool on the stage and it was off, as I was looking at the stage, it was off to the right. So I guess that's stage left. I go up on the stage and if you were sitting in the middle of the theater, anywhere in the middle of the theater, you could only see one little bit of it. It was kind of tucked behind. The darn thing was completely embossed all the way around with this very fancy mosaic tile pattern. I said to Gavin, the same thing. Why did you have to use all this expensive tile, which must have cost a lot of money to get it to look nice? And it was covering the whole pool, even the part nobody could see. Same answer. Well, we want it to look authentic for the cast. Now, those are only two examples that I caught. How many thousand others were there? This was at a time when we were beginning to have trouble. You know, trouble was brewing. It wasn't just that Gavin was having people hand embroidered ties to chairs or building swimming pools with fancy mosaic tiles. There were so many parts to the downfall. Trouble was brewing. So I asked Anne to get a little bit more specific about the financial difficulties. Wells helped establish an endowment fund. The Western New York Foundation, which he was head of, gave them $100,000 to start an endowment fund. And they did have an endowment fund. I can't tell you how much they had, but it was substantial. In those last couple of years, well, maybe even more than two, I, again, I can't put an exact number on it. But in the last few years, they were not only taking the interest out of the endowment, they were taking capital out of it, which they shouldn't have been doing. The board was, a lot of the board was, because they didn't participate, was oblivious. After Wells resigned from the board, I was asked to join the board, more or less to take his place. And so I was on the board eight years till the time it closed down. And at least six, maybe seven of those years, I was chairman of the development committee on the board. And the last year we were in full operation, we raised a million dollars in donations, corporate donations, personal donations, our benefit, what have you, which was the most that they had ever done. And that wasn't enough. And then, well, it was when Kathleen was there, so it would have been in that last year. One day, I was looking at the figures and saying, this isn't going to work. We're not, we're not going to get out of this. So I got on the telephone, and in 10 days, I raised $150,000. Going back to people who had given substantial gifts, I think I had maybe 18, 20 contributors to that 150. And after I got done, and I and then the board thanked me profusely and blah, blah, blah. And then after I really looked at the figures even more, I realized I needed about 500000 more. And of course, that was impossible. There was no way. I had covered everybody that was going to give anything substantial. One day, I was looking at my development sheet that I got, um, I think I got it on a biweekly basis. So I'm looking at one of my sheets one day, and all of a sudden... I, I'm missing $40,000. The husband and wife of the Buffalo Curry Express, what was their name? The Andrews. Well, anyway, they gave $40,000 for the 40th anniversary of Studio Arena Theater to be used for an educational project. So every time I got my little sheet of paper, the $40,000 was on there. But one time it wasn't. So I said to Don Elick, who was running the development office, well, where's the $40,000? He said, he looked at me with this pained look and he said, you'll have to ask Ken Neufeld, who was running the theater. You know, he was the administrator. So I went right up to his office and said, where's the 40,000? He said, oh, we had to use it to pay bills. I said, what? So we had a board meeting within three days of that. So I asked the board to go into executive session and I told the board, 
the next day they fired Ken Newfeld. So there was a lot of financial mismanagement going on at Studio Arena, to say the least. Here's Ann to talk about who was really to blame. But then there was the board. You've got to look at two sides of the coin. The board was this great big monster, 36 people. Maybe it was 32, 32 or 36, can't be sure. Awful lot of people. And only maybe a half, if lucky, a half of them showed up. You were, And of course, the president had to be there or the vice president and the treasurer and the secretary. So possibly only eight or nine other board members there making decisions. And they weren't making decisions because something would be presented. They presented these ideas. And it was almost as if they talked to all of the people who were in the room before the meeting and got them to vote for it. So I suspect that a lot of times when we had to make decisions, the people who were in the room were already primed to say yes. And if I voted no, I would get the worst dirty looks from people. And then Ken Newfoyle would give me a hard time after the meeting. And I'd come home and I'd talk to Wells about all this. And he said, why are you doing this? He had given up at that point. I, he saw the handwriting on the wall long before the, the real problem started. They just wanted to have their name. They could put it on their resume that they said on the Studio Arena. Because Studio Arena then by then had a big reputation. It was one of the big three. The Albright Knox, the Buffalo Philharmonic, and Studio Arena. All producing organizations, in a sense. You know, The Shays didn't count because they didn't produce anything. We had a bunch of people who couldn't care less. And when I would try to, I would stand at the door at the end of a board meeting and I'd say, okay, how much are you going to give me for development? You know, I would stand there with my hand and, and I, I, and, you know, they'd be very polite and they'd pat my hand and say, I'll send you a check. Half the time I never saw it, you know, sometimes I did. And I would have to badger people. I learned from Ann Hayes. She was director of development. That was the way she operated. So I just copied her. As I said, we raised a million dollars that last year, which is a substantial amount of money. But on the other point, our budget was hovering around $5 million, And you're supposed to bring in about 60 to 65% of your income from ticket sales or events. And Studio Arena was doing about that until the last couple of years. Now, for those of you who don't know, and apparently I was one of them, over at Buff State, there is a whole section dedicated to the history of Studio Arena. So I asked Anne to tell me a little bit more about that area and that special space. Eleanor Murray gave the bequest to Buff State College to have that space, that special space available where it could be seen rather than locked up in a closet. Well, she was very interested in the theater. Uh, she was a trustee director for a number of years and gave a great deal of money to the theater over a period of years. She was involved for a long time. A lot of people I don't think are aware of it because, well, for the last year, of course, it has been closed. I know that from what Dan Delandro told me, he's the guy in charge of it. He has cataloged everything. I gave them tons of stuff back in 2020, and I've got more stuff. I keep finding stuff. I imagine Anne's house is like a treasure trove of stuff from Studio Arena. Tell me you don't love listening to Ann Boot. I asked her one last time, I said, you know, tell me about some, some memories that you have. Let's not talk all about just bad things. And here's what she had to say. One memory I have, I'm just trying to think of someone that pops into my head. There was a play that we did and it was not in the beginning. It was maybe more towards the end of 681. And I don't even remember the name of this play, but I remember that all of the cast were all in these body bags writhing on the floor. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous. It was like they were like butterflies emerging. They never emerged. They never emerged. And of course, people, people walked out by the ton. Half of the audience walked out. It was a complete disaster. But to me, it was fascinating. And then another one that I remember, it was across the street at the palace. Talk about a shocker. On the stage was a refrigerator. And there was also a little thing that looked like a fire, campfire sort of kind of fire. Somebody came out and opened the refrigerator door, took out cabbages and threw them on the stage and tomatoes and threw them on the stage and went against the wall place was a mess when they got through. And then they closed the refrigerator. And I don't think they did it again, as I remember. And then somebody came out and it looked like they were going to roast a lamb. 
you know, a skewered lamp and they were putting it on this fire. And then the, you know, the lights went out. So you didn't see the, the end of it, but it was just suggestive. And then, oh, the worst part, this guy came out and I don't know what he was doing when he first came out. I can't remember that, but he urinated against the wall. And, and it, the whole thing was, you know, more or less more of the same, only different. <laughs> and we're all sitting there. And at that point in time, our seats were in the fourth row center, just before the break. We were right in the center. And so you're just sitting there, bug-eyed. <laughs> and I can remember Wells, he was very tolerant and he was very accepting. And he was ready to get up and walk out. And I grabbed his arm and I said, no, you can't, you, you cannot do that. You who are Mr. Studio Arena Theater, you cannot do that. So he stayed, we stayed to the bitter end. And of course, afterwards, everybody was standing around in the lobby and people were just, you know, standing around. They didn't even know what to say. But I remember those images vividly. And especially that guy urinating on the wall. That really, I mean, that, that the women were just shocked, you know. We had Tennessee Williams. That's another interesting thing. One time, Tennessee Williams came to the theater, and we had some guests coming from out of town. And one of our guests, the wife, had been an English teacher. She was retired. Oh, she was just dippy about Tennessee Williams. So we took them to the theater, and he was there that night. This was opening night. He was there. She sat down next to him. Somehow, we got her to sit next to him. I don't know just how it all happened. And she had this nice little chat with him, and she never forgot that the rest of her life. <laughs> I don't blame her. If I was sitting down next to Tennessee Williams, I'd never forget it for the rest of my life. I am so delighted to have had Ann Moot joining us for A History of Buffalo Theater. But now, we haven't heard from this young man in a while. It's time to hear from Tony Chase with some reactions to the downfall of Studio Arena he talks about the various artistic directors, the diminishing use of local actors, and how this affected the formation of, of other smaller theaters in the area, which then in turn helped contribute to the downfall of Studio Arena as well. And uh, the effect of their inability to adjust their play choices for their audience. And finally, the board itself. Neil continued to use local people. I have this from Betty Lutz, Jim DeMunn, whose son is Jeffrey DeMunn and others of, of that generation, that Neil continued to use them. David Frank no longer wanted to use local actors. He was not from this community. He felt no connection to this community. And Gavin Cameron Webb also did not. They would do this bit where they would offer an actor an equity contract, but with the understanding that you know, you'd never again work for anyone else. They'd never hire you again. And so these people were persona non grata. Well, you know show people. They made their own theaters. So suddenly the Kavanoki has a theater. And, and if you look at the seasons that Neil had, so many plays in a season, like chock-a-block full, building up dead, and the board of directors becomes alarmed. There is a bit of them becoming as alarmed by his personal life as they are by, you know, you could have taken control over the one, but they wanted an artistic director they could control. And they squeeze him out. So by the time they build the new theater, they had been over at the Old Town Casino, when he is out and they like throw him out unceremoniously, he's just canned. And, and it's at the time that they're opening the new theater, which there was a plaque in the lobby dedicating the theater to Neil and thanking him. Yeah, thanks a lot, but out with the garbage. David Frank comes in and complains bitterly about the board interfering. He used to refer disparagingly to the, to the season of Greater Tuna, because by that time, the board is not, no longer these civic leaders. It becomes quite the prestige board, where it's no longer the head of the law firm. It's some up-and-coming junior partner who knows nothing, cares nothing. And Bob Suedos was passionately committed to that theater to such a point that his law firm said, hey, buddy, you work for us, you know, that his, his commitment to the theater was, was total. But these other people, they just liked letting everybody know they were on the board of Studio Arena Theater because it sounded kind of posh, and they did nothing. And they obsessively minded the artistic product, which they wanted to be more and more commercial because they're just looking at, they know nothing of the theater, but they just want it to be, they think of it's more commercial. Well, what happened eventually is they were appealing to people who didn't really like the theater at all. We've gone from a theater committed to theater of merit where Eugene O'Neill, up and, up and coming playwrights to sheer madness, greater tuna. Um, and then they would do these, these very glitzy one-offs and people would buy the ticket to that show, but they're not, then they'd get hit with 
Maria Arena Fornes in town, in person, directing her own play, Abingdon Square, major production. What the hell is that all about? Like you are not cultivating theater goers. As the population is de declining, they were not responding to the need to be a smaller theater. And also the diversity problem. They were a white theater. And it got to be an issue that where they would obligingly, you can check every, every February, a, the air quotes, black show. But then they would start not mentioning in the publicity that it was an African-American story because they were afraid that, uh, well, they knew that their audience had a tendency to uh, not use those tickets. They just wouldn't even bother to come. Didn't want to come downtown, didn't want to see a black show. This is hugely problematic. And then when David Frank has finally had enough and he, he heads on out, so in comes Gavin Cameron Webb and Kathleen Gaffney. Yeah, I called her up and said, Kathleen, this ship is going down. You've been held holding the bag. And the second they actually declare bankruptcy, and I don't think they're going to give you any warning, anything that moves or not is an asset. That archive will be dispersed on eBay. She said, come on down. And Dan Delandro got four football players in a truck, and they loaded it all and took it to Buff State without asking permission of anyone. There is a perfect storm it's the changing demographics, the changing times. That was never going to be able to get enough money in the world for the amount of debt. They kept thinking that if they had a big enough hit, which is ridiculous, the board is to blame. Reminds me of that very famous line, the king, the king's to blame. Continuing in the timeline now, 2009, Red Thread Theater is founded by Eileen Dugan and Josephine Hogan. 2010, a report comes out that counting presenting organizations like Shays, as well as producing ones, there are 31 theaters currently operating in Western New York, the highest number in decades. That was over 10 years ago. 2011, Shays purchases 710, the former studio arena, and the Smith Theater, the former Lauby's Old Spain. Tony? It's really the banks who held the mortgages on Studio Arena. They are the heroes of the story. It's not our government. It's banks who said, all right, we will forgive this debt, which they were going to have to anyway because the theater was going bankrupt. But they played their cards and they said, only if Shays will take over management of 710. And they saved that as a theater. Who knows what would have happened? Yeah, that was critically important, and we have M&T to, to thank for that, and you know, whatever other banks held liens. When they saw it going down, their whole thought was, we were investing in the arts, and if we're going to forgive that debt, it's going to be for an investment in the arts. And so they did, and I guess, you know, to their credit, they didn't micromanage what Shays did with these spaces. You know, I loved when I saw Starring Buffalo in there, where they had the high school choruses were a mix of Broadway and Buffalo people doing a show. And what I loved about it, somebody criticized them for this because they used a couple of rural high schools where all the kids were white. And I thought, yeah, and here they are downtown Buffalo and their parents had to come downtown Buffalo and park and eat in a restaurant. And they're doing a show with Dudney Joseph and they're having a diversity experience that they cannot have in Wheatfield or wherever they're from. And it's not, you will be diverse, boom. It's just like, let's do a show. And uh, yeah, the people from New York are not all white and no one's even mentioning this, it's just a fact. And we're doing a show and we like you and you like us and we're meeting your parents and you're having, having our selfies together. And it's a beautiful diversity experience, which is not being rammed down your throats because it's good for you. It's just like, oh, wow, yeah, I did a show with these uh, you know, people who don't look like me. And you know, it was great. And they were nice and I liked them and they liked me and we worked together and we're Facebook friends and we're keeping in touch. And I thought, oh, thank you, Shays. Thank you, Starring Buffalo. Um, thank you, Wheatfield. Thank you, M&T that um, little by little, little by little. But yeah, that's a good thing because you know, whatever's going to become of that, thank you the banks who made sure that they didn't just turn that into parking. Continuing along in the timeline, 2011, Fred Keller, 
who you heard mentioned by Tina Rausa earlier on in the podcast in one of the earlier episodes. Fred Keller dies in California. He was a program director and artistic guiding light behind Channel 4's first 14 years of success. He was the co-founder, as I said, of the Actors Workshop of Western New York. He was one of the founding fathers of modern visual and theatrical culture in Western New York, whose Circle Art and Glen Art Theaters gave Buffalo its crucial 1960s education in the art of film from Europe, Asia, and South America. Fred Keller, gone in 2011. Also in 2011, Raisa's Theater Company is founded by Victoria Perez. Here is Victoria to talk a little about it. There was only like three of us doing Latino theater here in Buffalo, right? Myself, Rolando, and Lilian Gina Quinones. She's no longer here. She's in Atlanta. And we were constantly just being called for the, you know, those type of roles. And it was like, we have so much more to give, right? And we had done the whole theater company, Raices, in like 2003, 2004 with Ujima. This is right before I left Mm -hmm. to Florida. And we were at Theater Law. So we did two productions as Raices. And Lorna directed our first show. And for various reasons, everybody just went their separate ways. So that first try at Raices just like dismantled. But of course, if at first you don't succeed, here's Victoria to tell you what happens next. Ten years later, I'm back in Buffalo, and I'm like, I really want to do a reading, a reading series. I just want to do plays in Spanish, right? Not just Spanish. I just want to do plays by Latino playwrights. And I'm like, but I don't want to do a company because that just left a bad taste in my mouth. I don't—that's just not—I'm not interested in that. And I was just like, hey, Scott, I want to do this. I want to do, like, four or five readings in a season. Just one night, invite an audience— free for the community, and I want you to host it. I want Rollers Travel to host it. And he said, okay. So we got together with uh, Gina. So we chose the, the four plays. We created, we did the whole press release thing. We did not want a, a theater company at all. Mm-hmm. I just wanted a reading series. Mm-hmm. That's it. But of course, it turns out that a reading series would not really be enough. So Victoria moved on to bigger things. And we did the first reading, and it was La Gringa. La Gringa is about identity, and it's about trying to reconcile not being Puerto Rican enough or not being American enough, you know. And at the Q&A, a mom is sitting next to her daughter, and the mom raises her hand, and she goes, Hi, I just, great job, blah, blah, blah. I just want to say that my daughter and I haven't been speaking for a very long time, our relationship has changed. She's a teenager now, blah, blah, blah. She doesn't want to hang with mom. But in the middle of the play, she tapped my shoulder and said, Mommy, that's me up there. And I said, crap. What seeing yourself, what representation means for that family, it meant opening up dialogue. If theater can do that, then I want to be a part of it 100%. And that sort of takes us all the way back to Tony Chase's remarks in episode three where he talked about theater being a vehicle for empathy and how important that is. Then after that, it was like a full-on company, theater company with ensemble members. And our, one of our biggest mission was, I saw that there was, there's only three of us doing this that studied theater here. There's got to be other people. And there's got to be not only other people that have studied it, but other people that just want to do it. And I said, what, what we have to do is help develop them as theater artists and also give them the opportunities to grow as theater artists mm-hmm. because no other company would do that, right? So that's, that's what we set out to do. So thank you, Victoria, for that story of Raices. Continuing in the timeline now, 2011 also saw the emergence of post-industrial productions with Bob Van Valen. 2013... Shea's newest acquisition, 710 Main, the former studio arena, reopens as a venue available to any theater in the area who wishes to use the space for its own productions. And it all starts with RLTP's production of Circle Mirror Transformation. Then, also in 2013, Second Generation Theater is founded by Kristen Bentley, Kelly Jekyll Copps, and Aaron Dandies. Here are Kristen and Kelly to talk about what motivated this development. 
To help you differentiate the voices, we have Kelly Copps slightly to the right and Kristen Bentley slightly to the left. Bottomless Mimosas is the the immediate impetus, but Kristen can tell you the full story. When we were all at UB together, Kelly and I, and then later Aaron, we kind of like creating together and that we made a pretty good team. So we lightly said, oh, someday it would be fun to do something like this. But, you know, then we graduated and, and did, did worked for a while, did different things and threw some bottomless mimosas and conversations one day at Merge where Bobby Cook was serving, kind of started talking about how fun it would be to produce into the woods. Then I called Kelly and we had a quite serious conversation and we were like, well, if we're talking about doing a show, why don't we just do what we've always talked about, which is start our own thing. You know, at that time, you know, what we didn't see was a consistent younger company. We didn't see a lot of female leadership at that time. And we really wanted to create an environment where people felt collaborative, respected, and really fulfilled from the beginning of rehearsals through the performances. So that's kind of the story of how we started. So starting a theater company from scratch is a very challenging task. So I asked the ladies, uh, who helped you? A lot of people spent a lot of time between Vincent, Saul, Meg, Randy, like they all sat down with us and gave us advice and let us know how they started. They opened, you know, a ton of information to us. They answered our questions. And that was a lot of the reason we named ourselves what we did. You know, not only Kelly's parents, but also there was this established first generation who really helped us and guided us. And we wanted to take everything they learned and figured out, okay, and now how do we tell our stories and, and do what we want to do with this? We called Lorraine O'Donnell pretty immediately as well. We knew we wanted her to be the witch, and we called Chris Kelly pretty early on to direct. And so Bobby, Chris, and Lorraine kind of became an artistic advisory council almost for the three of us as we started. And obviously Kelly's husband, Steve, has been super involved from the beginning and her sister Amy as well. We kind of had this group of artists that were helping build us up and not let us let it go, you know? And then Richard Lambert, I don't remember who suggested him. We reached out to him. He was super open about us using his space and renting from him. So it just started to come together. And then, yeah, we almost couldn't back down because all these people were amping us up. Like, yeah, do it, girls, do it. Erin's whole family, her brother Leo is a lawyer and helped us. John Dandies was instrumental in setting up our first fundraisers. And Erin's late mother, Marcy, was there every single show. My mom did so many hours of free wig labor that I can't ever thank her enough. My dad was building weird props and sets, all of those different mentors. They were hugely instrumental in allowing us to say, yes, this is doable. Here's the right path. And then, you know, we took all of their advice and, and we followed a lot of it and a little bit of it we threw out the window. You know, you got to make your own way, but it, it seemed really foolish to not listen to the experiences of all of these other theater professionals that we respected. That's right. Go to those who have already done it and pick their brains. So what was the mission? We chose shows that were exciting to us and that we weren't maybe seeing happen. And I think, yes, we are lucky that we have these great friends and connections in this amazing community. But I also think part of it was People were excited by the opportunity to realize some of these shows that people hadn't really touched in a while because a lot of them were bigger and also to really collaborate. You know, from day one, we have said, like, we don't know what we don't know, which is a lot. And, and we're all in this together, creating this together. And it still is like that. You know, every show we are out of our comfort zone. We are learning new things. We pick ambitious projects and then like we make it work and we would not be able to make it work without every single like creative person that is involved along there with us or non-creative you know our boards our advisors our accountants you know things like that everybody has helped us our mission was to do good theater which it should be every theater company's mission which is why it can't be your mission statement but it's literally the bottom the bottom line goal every time tell a good story do a good show our mission has evolved i guess since then but at the core of it it really is the same and i would say the the part that's really evolved is how we craft a season how we are building and catering to an audience things like that that as we continue to grow we push ourselves to understand and know more 
we need to hone how we craft a season and, and start to guide that a little more closely. But as with every theater company, the question is, where are we going to do this? Dad's got a barn. Let's put on a show. Richard opened his doors. The Phoenix is such a cool, unique space, and it really helped shape who we've become as a company, where we go in and transform spaces. We were kind of forced to do it there to fit the size of what we wanted to do in that space, but it unlocked something in us that we found very exciting and different, which is more immersive experience, which I think that we have achieved at all of the spaces we've been in. But when our time there was done, we were looking elsewhere, but we didn't have a ton of time. The Opera House presented itself as an opportunity to us. And, you know, there were advantages and disadvantages to going that far outside of the city. We did expose ourselves to a whole new audience there, but we kind of found that we didn't bring that audience back with us necessarily. So it was a good opportunity to do some really big shows because of that space. But we knew that wasn't our forever home. We were very close to having a dedicated space in South Buffalo, which is why we took a year off before we ended up at the Smith. That didn't end up happening. So then, you know, Michael Murphy and Shays presented an opportunity to us, which put us back in the heart of downtown, affiliated with Shays, the best brand in Buffalo. We all kind of just sat down together and heard Michael's vision for what he wanted Shays to become, which was not just a touring Broadway house, but a place that also highlighted local artists. And we really loved that energy and his vision. And so that's where we've been. That was kind of a leap of faith for him because at that time he was new in town and he didn't know anything about us. So when we were saying, hey, can we come produce out of your theater? He was thinking, who are you? So again, Robert, um, Robert Brunschvid was really a, a huge advocate for us there. So finally, I asked the ladies if they could pinpoint why they've become so successful so quickly. Our motto that isn't on our website has always been surround yourself with good people and good things will happen. We work really hard to incorporate new faces and some of the most respected professionals in Buffalo. I think I can speak for both of us when I say that one of our proudest accomplishments is the caliber of people that are willing to say, yes, I want to work with you. That's always been our the way that we try to work. We try very hard to hire people who are wonderfully talented, but also, and perhaps more importantly, that are pleasant to work with and that work hard and that respect their fellow artists. And that's served us really well so far. You know, when we sat down with a lot of our professors and other artistic and executive directors in town, Saul was one that showed me his Jewish rep schedule, budgets. The three-show season really appealed to us because like everyone in town, we're juggling a lot more than just producing these three shows. However, we decided really early on, we didn't want to pack in and do a four or five, six show season. We wanted to really care about every show, really care about every title, challenge ourselves and each other, but also give each show the attention that it deserved. And with everything else we are juggling, that was the right size. And I think that is part of what's helped us is we haven't spread ourselves too thin with how much we're producing. And that's an advantage, again, of being renters and not having a full-time space where we have to be churning the content all the time. So now, the Smith Theater has an occupant. Both Mary-Kate O'Connell's O'Connell & Company and Second Generation Theater take up residence there. Continuing along in the timeline, I hate to say it, but we are almost finished. In 2019, ARTA, the Association of Regional Theater Artists, is founded. To explain what ARTA is, are Kristen Tripp Kelly and Alexandria Watts, the current leaders of that group. And I'm sorry that I didn't get the chance to switch these to right and left ears so you'd know who was speaking, but I will tell you this, Speaking first is Kristen Tripp Kelly, followed by Alexandria Watts. It's Association of Regional Theater Artists. We are a trade association made up of over 400 theater practitioners who are working in the Western New York region. But we put a blanket term of theater practitioners is what we've been using as of late. And it just feels right because it's not just actors, it's not just directors, it's not just choreographers. It's technicians, stage managers, hair designers, dramaturgs. It's anyone who is in 
this industry, in this community. And we work around these four pillars, these big ideas, advocacy, education, community, and opportunity. So we, we support and advocate for each other because we believe that if artists feel safe and supported and empowered, then the quality of work in town will go up across the board. This is really done out of love for our theater community. It is a bit like equity, but we're not a union. We don't have that kind of legal backing. The idea is that the community will take care of each other. Before ARDA, there was no organization that was looking out for practitioners. So I wondered who started ARDA and what was the intention when it was formed? Ben Moran deserves the credit. He's the person that sort of made the idea a reality. He was the initial organizer. And I'll tell you, it just started from a bunch of informal conversations that he and I were having when we were working on a production together a couple of years ago. And these are the conversations that actors and designers and technicians have all the time. How can we be better? Because we are a town without any unions which means that there's really no recourse when a theater artist wants to raise an issue around equity, diversity, and inclusion, or auditions and casting, physical and emotional safety contracts, the list goes on and on. We felt there was a need to bring voices together. It is all volunteer. I mean, everyone who's working with us is doing this again out of a deep love for the community and this will to see a better future. So tell us a little bit about Arta's major activities. We're not inventing the wheel. We're not reinventing the wheel. We're inspired by a lot of great organizations that are out there already. We are in the process of drafting standards right now, inspired by documents like Not In Our House that came out of Chicago. We would like to see a standard set of best practices employed in Buffalo. And it would include something like a conflict resolution plan. We hope to have ARDA reps involved in every production. And I should add that all of these suggestions in the best practices document are largely no cost solutions. They wouldn't have an impact on a theater's budget. And it really is about intention. And do you intend to be what you say you are? Let's have a set of standards and we'll adhere to it. And that'll be that. <laughs> it pretty much is about having good intentions of saying, yes, I want anyone who works at my theater to feel good, to produce really awesome work and to keep it moving. So what is the ultimate goal of ARTA? Essentially, it's just to create a tighter, more communicative theater community. because. We had an anti-racist training in January, and someone had mentioned that it was just a wonderful theater community of people who don't really speak or talk to each other or have any sort of, there's no through line. So what's really lovely about Arda is that I feel like the through line is we are all going to be on the same page, and we are all looking ahead to after I'm done, after Kristen's done, after you're done, after we're all done with this theater community, say we all move on 20, 30, 40 years, this will still be going. We want to create a lasting impression and lasting change for the future. It's not just about us. It's about the future of this community. The Standards Committee has been meeting nonstop. They've got a goal. They've got a goal. Yeah, they've got a goal. <laughs> they've got a goal. And I mean, it's the standards that really got this organization started. We're all invested in that idea. And once again, thank you ladies for your contributions. 2020, believe it or not, this is my last entry. I'm probably wrong. There are probably other theaters on the horizon, but frankly, with the 2020 pandemic, that shut everything down, I think things were probably nipped in the bud. And even though people are chomping at the bit, it will probably take a little while for new theater companies to arise. So we end with 2020 and, ironically, a company called 1666 Theatrical Productions, 
co-founded by Mike Dobin, Rick Latimer, and Shelby Converse. That is the end of the timeline. And here is Tony Chase to talk a little bit about what comes next. As I say candid things about people and institutions, it's not without affection, it's not without admiration for what they do, and in fact, all of what they do. I'm in awe of David Lamb, I'm in awe of the O'Neills, and you know, in awe of Shays, that these are remarkable, but I'm a critic. Well, I look quietly up the terrain now. Scott Barron seems to, he keeps trying to make national connections, very ambitious in that regard. Kavanoke seems to want to get to be an equity theater, step one, seems to want an MFA program, step two, is trying to get first productions of, of things around, you know, from very small space, is trying to get a more diverse audience, as is Scott. Okay, there's two. Torn space for a very different kind of thing, but they do bring in Bonnie Maranka herself, coiner of the phrase performance art. There she is, talking to 11 people at Hall Walls, but looking at their work, at their colossal installations. When I was volunteering for New York State Council on the Arts, they knew very well what torn space was. And that brings us to the end of a history of Buffalo theater. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope I haven't screwed things up too badly. I'm sure someone will let me know if I have. And I'm also sure that somewhere in the near future, there will be an addendum to this, perhaps full of corrections, perhaps full of additions. I've had a blast. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work, but mostly it was a lot of fun. I thank you to everyone who contributed. I thank you to everyone who had the least bit of input because this is a labor of love and I thank you for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a normal edition of RLTP's Off-Road. So thanks once again to all who contributed. This has been Pete Pomisano. Hoping that you enjoyed this. There will be more information about this in the future. I hope to have it available for forever. And I hope to have the document available to you. So if you'd like to read along, you'd like to follow along, or you'd just like to use it as a reference, uh, it will be available. The fact of the matter is, I'm still editing it. I'm still changing it. I'm still adjusting it. And frankly, I can't believe we actually ended up with eight episodes, as I guessed it would be, because that's all it was, was a guess. If you have not subscribed to Off-Road with me, Pete Pomisano, please do so, and I will see you in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm.